This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to our program today, and thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and the world today is a darker place than it was a few years ago, due in large part to the subtle subterfuge and the naked aggression of a certain tandem of nations, or an axis, you could call them, and they are Russia and China. These two are closely aligned with each other under Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, and they're doing all they can to push against the global peace to bring the curtain down on the era of U.S. global dominance, and to take more, more land, more power, more control, and even more people for themselves. So it is sobering to see this axis growing so powerful and so belligerent in various ways. And in our first story on the show today, we'll hear about one part of Russian aggression, which is among the most disturbing aspects of Russia's war on Ukraine, and that is theft of Ukraine's children. From there, we'll take a look at China. The evidence of China's plans for major war is multiplying. The preparations are happening on several different fronts, and it all shows that the Chinese dragon is very much on the war path. So in our second segment of today's episode, we'll hear about these ongoing preparations in a report from Peter Van Halteren. The third story will stay on the topic of China to show that the nation is not just preparing for war in its region, it's also successfully infiltrating a nation that's an ocean away, and that is Canada. China's tentacles of influence in Canada are deepening, they're marshalling various fifth-column elements, and they're using a wide range of state-sponsored inducements, which we'll learn all about in a report from Mr. Timothy Ostendarp. And then our last word today is about an attitude, a specific kind of attitude that the Bible shows that followers of Jesus Christ must develop. It's a mindset that Christians are supposed to be guided by all year long, but it is especially relevant at this time of year. So we'll leave a little bit of suspense around that for now, and we'll begin with a look at one particularly dark aspect of Russia's war on Ukraine, and that is the widespread abduction and forcible deportation of Ukraine's children. The children that the Russian forces are taking are not all orphans. Many of them have at least one living parent or grandparent in Ukraine who loves them and longs with God-given natural affection to be reunited with them. But Russians are seizing these children, and in many cases, falsely telling them either that their families are dead or no longer want them. And then the Russians are shipping these children off to various locations inside Russia to be assimilated. This is an utterly diabolical act, and it does constitute genocide, as defined by Article 2, Clause E of the Geneva Conventions. Article 2 says, quote, Genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. And then Clause E is, quote, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. 
So what Russian President Vladimir Putin's forces are doing in Ukraine clearly constitutes genocide, as defined by the Geneva Conventions, and it also constitutes a war crime as defined by the International Criminal Court, or the ICC. The ICC maintains an extremely high threshold for proving war crimes. So we don't hear about many warrants being issued for those kinds of crimes. But Vladimir Putin made prosecutors work quite easy by boasting on his official website about having abducted Ukrainian children. So the ICC did issue a warrant on March 17th for his arrest and also a warrant for the arrest of his main accomplice in the child abduction program, a woman named Maria Lvova Belova. Here is the announcement from ICC President Pyotr Hofmansky. Today, 17th of March 2023, the International Criminal Court has issued two warrants of arrest in the Ukraine situation. For Vladimir Putin, President of the Russian Federation, and for Maria Lvova Belova, Commissioner of the Russian President for Children's Rights for the alleged war crimes of deportation of children from Ukrainian occupied territories into the Russian Federation. It is forbidden by international law for occupied powers to transfer civilians from the territory they live in to other territories. Children enjoy special protection under the Geneva Convention. So that was the announcement from the International Criminal Court saying that they had issued arrest warrants for both Putin and Lvova Belova. And also relevant to this development is a February 14th report by Conflict Observatory and the Yale's Humanitarian Research Lab. This report found a network of 43 facilities where Russians are holding abducted Ukrainian children while they determine where to ship them. One section of this report says, Russia's federal government has systematically relocated at least 6,000 children from Ukraine to a network of re-education and adoption facilities in Russia-occupied Crimea and mainland Russia. End quote. So the 6,000 children mentioned there have been independently confirmed by Conflict Observatory, but an organization called the Children of War has taken a broader look at this practice and has tallied more than 16,000 Ukrainian children who have suffered this fate so far. The true number, likely far higher even than the 16,000, is impossible to know since only Kremlin-controlled journalists are allowed in these Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine where the children are being abducted. So this is happening on a large scale. And once the children are taken into one of the re-education facilities, the youngest ones are made to believe that they are Russian nationals. And then for those who are too old to buy that, they're instead just taught to believe Russia's talking points and propaganda about the war. So those main points are that the United States staged a violent coup in Ukraine in 2014 and installed an American puppet government. And then after parts of Ukraine's eastern Donbass region declared independence from this puppet regime, then Nazified Ukrainians spent eight years trying to murder all of them. And Russian troops are heroically risking their lives to end Ukraine's quote-unquote genocide of ethnic Russians in the nation. So those are some of the main points that the Russians are teaching their own children, and that these Ukrainian children are now being taught as well. 
And by Russia's own admission, the tactic is working. Maria Lavova Belova spoke recently about a group of children who she helped to bring to the Moscow region. And she said, quote, At first they were negative about the president and said nasty things. They sang the Ukrainian anthem and that sort of thing. But later, that negative attitude turned into love for Russia. End quote. So the tactic seems to work. And after the re-education is deemed sufficient, the children are pushed into Russian families. And these are often in Siberia and other remote locations where even if they wanted to, the Ukrainian children would have little chance of ever being able to cross the thousands of miles to get back home to Ukraine. The practice is perverse beyond words, but it makes sense for Russia because Russia is rapidly aging and even a rapidly dying society. Since the start of the 1960s, Russia's people have not been producing enough children to replace themselves. Only 1.5 children are born per woman, and that's far below the rate of 2.1 that is required just to keep a population from shrinking. And then you combine that abysmal birth rate with soaring rates of immigration and excess deaths, and it's clear that Russia's demographics are terminal. They are in a death spiral, and that's particularly true for ethnic Russians. Vladimir Putin has often acknowledged this problem, and in 2021, he told his people, quote, 146 million people for such a vast territory is insufficient. So that was in 2021, and in the time since, the population has further fallen, down to an estimated 143.4 million people. So a dramatic plunge just in a few years. So it's clear that this is a dying country, and by stealing Ukraine's children, Putin hopes that he can mitigate this demographic crisis. And actually, a compelling case can be made that this was part of his motivation for the war from the beginning. In a March 8th briefing, analyst Jake Bro said, This land grab in Ukraine was always also a people grab. The goal was always to steal the children of Ukraine, russify them, and make them loyal to Putin and the Russian Empire. End quote. So part of the plan, apparently from the start, was to steal children, which the Bible tells us are a gift from God and then indoctrinate those children into Russia's mindset of unyielding victimhood and its extreme historic revisionism. And then the ultimate aim is to make these young people loyal to Putin's Russia so that they can become soldiers in Russia's future wars 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road. The notion of future wars that Russia plans to wage might sound surprising, but Russia's recent history in locations such as Moldova, Chechnya, Georgia, Belarus, and Crimea show that the current war on Ukraine is not a one-off, nor is it the final piece of the puzzle. On February 9th, geopolitical strategist Peter Zion wrote about plans for military campaigns that Putin's Russia has far beyond the current war. He wrote, Perhaps the scariest takeaway from the Ukraine war is that it's just beginning. 
Russia is looking to reclaim enough land for them to reach the geographical strong points that were once part of the Soviet Union. End quote. Putin famously called the Soviet Union's collapse the 20th century's greatest geopolitical catastrophe. And he has made clear that he aims to reverse the catastrophe by retaking the Baltic nations, Moldova, the Caucasus, even Central Asia, and parts of Poland and Romania. In order for the Russians to feel geographically secure, they need to gain control over all this peripheral land. And they know that they cannot win the future wars over those territories with an army of 80-year-old soldiers. So they're stealing Ukraine's children. And if Russia is successful in the current war, we should expect tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands more of Ukraine's children to be forcibly deported to Russia and russified. And they would then grow up and be used to perpetuate this same dark cycle, stealing more children from other attacked nations so that still more nations can later be attacked. Vladimir Putin's evil is glaring, and it takes on great significance when examined in the light of Bible prophecy. In the Trumpet's September 2014 edition, Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry explained, We need to watch Vladimir Putin closely. He is the Prince of Rosh that God inspired Ezekiel to write about 2,500 years ago. Mr. Flurry's article examines Bible prophecies about a multinational Asian power that will emerge in the near future and that will field an army of 200 million soldiers. And he calls special attention to Ezekiel 38 verse 2, which calls the man who will lead this army the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That's the way Young's literal translation renders that Bible verse. And Meshach and Tubal are ancient names representing two modern Russian cities. And then the name Rosh, according to the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary, is a variation of an ancient name for Russia, which was anciently called Rus. Ezekiel describes future wars that will be carried out by this Asian power, led by this prince of Rosh. And placing these prophecies alongside Putin's history of aggression, Mr. Fleury wrote... I strongly believe Vladimir Putin is going to lead the 200 million man army. Just look at the power he already has. Can you think of any other Russian politician who could become so powerful and have the will to lead Russia into the crisis of crises? End quote. So this 200 million man army will be far larger than any ever assembled in the history of human warfare. And most of the troops will come from nations that ally with Russia under Putin's leadership, nations such as China. But Putin's campaign to abduct children from nations like Ukraine will also help this future army to reach this stunning size. It's clear that some dark years lie ahead for Russia, Ukraine, and really for the entire world. But in his booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Flory stresses that this darkness will be short-lived and that it'll give way to a hope-filled future. He writes, Vladimir Putin is a sign of one of the most inspiring messages in the Bible. What we're seeing in Russia ultimately leads to the transition from man-ruling man to God-ruling man. A great transition is about to occur. End quote. 
To understand the details of these Bible prophecies, and what Mr. Fleury calls the most inspiring message in the Bible, please order your free copy of The Prophesied Prince of Russia. The evidence of China's plans and preparations for war is multiplying. These active preparations are happening in several notable ways, and it all shows that China is playing a part in pushing the world into a dark new era, as we'll hear about now in this report from Peter Van Halteren. China is preparing for conflict. Tensions between China and the United States have been soaring for years and a series of recent events show tensions will only intensify. The Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang warned of conflict and confrontation between Beijing and Washington if the US doesn't change its course. China is ramping up its military budget, which is projected to rise by 7.2% this year, the highest increase in four years. Former Premier Li Keqiang told Congress that the Chinese military force also known as the People's Liberation Army, quote, should work to carry out military operations, boost combat preparedness, and enhance military capabilities, unquote. Another way China is strengthening its position is by building an enormous nuclear arsenal. Right now, Russia has the most nuclear weapons, closely followed by America. China is in third place, but rapidly catching up. 
Earlier this year, the commander of the U.S. Strategic Command warned Congress that China now has more land-based intercontinental ballistic missile launchers than the United States. As of right now, most of these missile silos are sitting empty. But this increase in ICBM launches indicates that China will continue to expand its nuclear arsenal to compete with America. Even in space, China steadily works to surpass the United States. Last year, China completed its own fully operational space station after the U.S. banned its access to the International Space Station. China has also stepped up military activities in space to challenge America's superiority. China already has counter-space weapons such as electronic warfare systems, directed energy weapons, and anti-satellite missiles. These ground-based weapons could be used to disrupt or destroy satellites that the U.S. military depends on. The Ukraine war is another area where China poses a potential threat. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin sealed a no-limits partnership just before the war, which triggered great anxiety in the West. NATO is increasingly concerned that China will provide Russia with lethal aid for the Ukraine war. Last week, Xi Jinping visited Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin. Putin described Xi as a good old friend. He said the meeting was a, quote, landmark event that reaffirms the special nature of the Russia-China partnership, unquote. Right before the Chinese leader departed, he told Putin, there are changes which we haven't seen for a hundred years, and we are driving these changes together. To that, Putin replied, I agree. Because of the sure word of Bible prophecy, the trumpet has predicted for decades that Russia, together with China and other Asiatic nations, will become close allies. Mr. Flurry has explained that chapter 38 of Ezekiel shows that Russia will be the lead nation in this end-time Asian power bloc. However, Russia will be highly dependent on its alliance with China. That alliance is mentioned in Revelation 16, verse 12, where it says the ways of the kings of the east will be prepared. The kings of the east is referring to the powerful Asian alliance that we expect to rise soon. Another key passage that informed the trumpet's forecast of this alliance is Revelation 9, verse 16, which says, and the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand. This first shows that in the end time, this Asian force will have an army of 200 million men. Russia only has a population of 144 million, so it will look to its alliance with China and other nations to reach that number. If you want to learn more about these kings of the East and the prophesied alliance between Russia and China, you can request our free booklets Russia and China in Prophecy, and the prophesied Prince of Russia. Now back to the tensions between China and America. What is the United States doing to counter the threats coming from China? Earlier this month, the Biden administration proposed one of the nation's largest peacetime defense budgets for the Pentagon, $835 billion. Rather than focusing on near-term wars like the one in Ukraine, the Pentagon said that this budget should be primarily focused on developing weapons for future wars, such as a potential conflict with China. That might seem promising, but the United States has often shown itself to be the weaker nation in confrontations with China. 
We all remember the beginning of last month when the American military allowed a Chinese spy balloon to float over the nation for more than six days. The Biden regime proved to be too weak-willed to use its power to shoot down the potentially dangerous balloon that flew over thousands of miles of U.S. heartland. If China can fly a surveillance balloon over the country for that long, what else will it get away with? Let's take a look at the South China Sea, where China has also proved to be the more belligerent power. China continually intimidates American Air Force planes that patrol this international airspace over the sea. Last month, a Chinese fighter jet warned an American aircraft to keep a safe distance or you will be intercepted. A video published by the Wall Street Journal in December showed that a Chinese fighter jet was flying as close as 20 feet from an American plane. Confrontations such as these have become more aggressive as China has gained control over many sections of the South China Sea. This control has been established in large part by China's campaign of building artificial islands in the region and militarizing them with anti-ship and anti-aircraft missile systems in efforts to control these waters. In July 2016, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry wrote an article called China is Steering the World Toward War. In his article, he explained how the dangerous rise of China as a superpower is fulfilling Bible prophecy. He wrote the following, quote, Now that U.S. military presence in the area has been drastically reduced, China is claiming the entire South China Sea as its own. By building artificial islands atop coral reefs in the Spratlys and installing surface-to-air missile batteries in the Paracels, China is building a new strategic sea gate, unquote. This sea passage is vitally important because it is resource rich and more importantly because some $5.3 trillion worth of trade cruises through its waters every day and that accounts for about one-third of all global maritime trade. God warned the descendants of Israel in Deuteronomy 28 that if they refused to turn to him the enemies would use the sea gates to besiege Israel. In verse 52 it says and he shall besiege you in all your gates until your high and fenced walls come down wherein you trusted throughout all your land. And he shall besiege you in all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. The descendants of Israel today are mainly in America and Britain. As the American and British people forsake God and disobey his commandments, their enemies will take over the sea gates to besiege these modern day descendants of Israel. China's unlawful claims over the South China Sea and its belligerent push against the peace are one area where we see this prophecy being fulfilled. To prove the identity of the modern nations of Israel for yourself, you can order Herbert W. Armstrong's free book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. Taiwan is another point of friction in which China is determined to become the stronger nation. Ever since communist forces won the Chinese Civil War in 1949, China has claimed Taiwan as its own. Chinese President Xi Jinping often calls for the reunification and says China is willing to use military force to make this a reality. For years, China has intimidated the island by violating Taiwanese waters and airspace. And in the past few weeks, China has sent 25 warplanes and three warships towards the island. Last August, tensions over Taiwan escalated even further after Nancy Pelosi visited the island. During her visit, China showed its force by performing military exercises around Taiwan 
launching ballistic missiles over the island, sending warships across the Taiwan Strait, and bombarding Taiwanese government websites with an unprecedented amount of cyber attacks. One of the reasons Taiwan is such a point of interest is because of its global dominance in the semiconductor industry. U.S. companies like Apple and NVIDIA are largely dependent on Taiwan's production of semiconductors, which are found in thousands of products like computers, smartphones, medical equipment, military hardware, and countless other products. If China gains control over Taiwan, it could potentially use the semiconductor industry to increase its economic hold over the U.S. even further. China's increasing military presence and economic power will soon develop into an era defined in Bible prophecy. In Luke 21, verse 24, Jesus Christ speaks of the times of the Gentiles, an era in which powerful Gentile nations will dominate. It says, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. This prophecy hasn't been realized yet, but the rise of Gentile nations is becoming increasingly evident. The Gentiles are people that didn't descend from the 12 tribes of ancient Israel, the non-Israelite people. In end time prophecy, Israel itself refers mainly to modern day America and Britain. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Frey wrote about the time of the Gentiles and explained in detail who the major powers during this time will be. In his article, What are the Times of the Gentiles? He wrote, quote, once you understand who Israel is, then you can understand how the Gentiles, the non-Israelite peoples, have started to take charge of the world right now. China's actions prove that Gentiles are rising to power before our eyes. And this is just one of many Gentile nations growing more aggressive on the world scene. While these Gentile nations grow more powerful, America's will to counter their threats is weakening. God warned Israel and its descendants what would happen if they didn't obey his commandments. Leviticus 26 prophesies of the curses that would fall upon the modern-day descendants of Israel because of their disobedience. In verses 14 through 17, God said, But if you will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, and if you shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments, so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint you over you terror, consumption, and the burning egg, that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies, that they hate you and shall reign over you. And you shall flee when none pursues you. Then, in verse 19, God says, And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. God is saying, I'm going to break the pride of your power. You'll have lots of power, but the lack of courage to use it. And we see that happening now to Israel, specifically America. The United States is the number one military power right now, but it is completely lacking the will to use it. America doesn't have pride in its power anymore. And China recognizes that weakness and will continue to exploit it, which will soon lead into the times of the Gentiles. The fact that global power is shifting away from America and Britain towards communist nations like Russia and China is terrifying. Christ's prophecy in Luke 21 about the times of the Gentiles continues in verse 26. It says, People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. However, 
the Bible doesn't just predict war and suffering. There is also great hope in Bible prophecy. In the next verse, Christ prophesied what will happen right after these terrifying times of the Gentiles. In verse 27, he says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles will eventually lead to a time of great joy and happiness, Christ's return. To learn more about China's threat and its fulfillment of Bible prophecy, read Mr. Fleury's articles, China is steering the world toward war, and what are the times of the Gentiles? To understand the prophecies about Gentile nations like Russia and China, and the alliance between these nations, request our free booklet, Russia and China in Prophecy. China is not just preparing for war off its coasts. The Chinese Communist Party is also maneuvering behind the scenes to infiltrate a nation that's an ocean away. And that is Canada. China's tentacles of influence in Canada are deepening and procuring all kinds of sway for the Chinese Communist Party, as we will hear about now in this report from Mr. Timothy Ostendarp. Canada's ruling Trudeau government may be on the brink. Over the last month, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his government have faced ongoing allegations that they repeatedly ignored vital national intelligence warnings. These warnings allege that the Chinese government has been working to penetrate the ruling Liberal government and to also help keep it in power. They also allege elements within the Liberal Party of Canada may have committed treason against the country. The scandal has imperiled the Trudeau government. China's efforts to influence Trudeau's Liberal Party of Canada have long gone underreported and have been shared with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, 
Canada's Five Eyes Partners, and French and German spy services. The Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS for short, is Canada's top foreign security watchdog. CSIS identifies China's efforts as Canada's greatest strategic threat to national security and a direct threat to our national security and sovereignty. China's alleged penetration of the ruling Canadian government could explain Canada's exclusion from a new trilateral military intelligence and security partnership between the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia. Insider CSIS whistleblower allegations were published in both the Global News and the Global Mail. These reports allege that China directly interfered in Canada's 2019 and 2021 elections in an effort to have Trudeau's pro-China Liberal Party re-elected targeting 11 candidates in the Greater Toronto Area in 2019. Reports also allege that the Prime Minister and his government ignored repeated warnings about China's clandestine efforts before these elections. They also state that the Trudeau Liberal government was warned that a Liberal Member of Parliament, Han Dong, was nominated in 2019 with the help of Chinese state efforts. Han Dong was elected to Parliament later that year. The intelligence reports allege that Dong is affiliated with China's state government. The whistleblower accounts allege he was in regular communication with China's Toronto-based Chinese consulate, collaborating with the Chinese government over two Canadians taken into custody in retaliation for Canada detaining Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou on behalf of the United States government. Intelligence sources say Dong told the consulate that Beijing should hold off freeing Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Dong did not deny the conversation took place, but denied he was working against the interests of the two wrongly detained Canadian men. According to the intelligence sources, Dong was concerned that releasing the two men would boost the public image of the opposition Conservative Party that was putting public pressure on the Liberal government to do more to secure the release. After these latest revelations broke, the Liberal Party issued a statement that MP Dong was acting independent of the government and that the government was not aware of his conversations. Dong has resigned from the government and now sits as an independent. The CSIS allegations reveal some level of treason may have taken place within Trudeau's Liberal government and that Trudeau or his government ignored it for political partisan purposes. The situation may be even worse than we know. The question has become whether Prime Minister Trudeau or his office sat on this explosive intelligence, and if intelligence of this kind had been supplied to Trudeau and his government, why did Trudeau allow Dong to remain in the party? A transcript of the call between Dong and the Chinese government was provided from CSIS to Trudeau's government. The Globe and Mail reported that the Trudeau government determined that there was no actionable evidence after it received a CSIS transcript of an early 2021 conversation between Liberal MP Han Dong and China's top diplomat in Toronto. There are now calls for the Trudeau government to release the relevant sections of the transcript. Trudeau was re-elected to a minority government in September 2021, narrowly defeating the Conservative Party of Canada. Now it appears that happened with the help of China. The scandal raises all kinds of questions and cast doubt on the nation's election integrity. It also threatens Trudeau's smooth-running government machine. China's growing web of influence in Canada has included an intricate marshalling of fifth-column elements. It has used a bevy of state-sponsored inducements for several purposes to successfully court the elite within all levels of Canada's political, bureaucratic and business communities, to coerce elements of Canada's Chinese and Hong Kong diaspora communities, to partner with Chinese elements within Canada sympathetic to China's foreign interests and willing to promote them, 
To leverage legal donation laws within Canada to mask its illegal political influence peddling efforts, to embed Chinese agents within political candidate campaign teams, to push cash through various intermediaries into the campaigns of preferred political candidates, and to bust Chinese international students to vote in a liberal nomination for a candidate, and Dong, allegedly sympathetic to Chinese interests, thus attempting to exert influence over Canada's federal party nominations and its 2019 and 2021 national federal elections. This spectrum of influence peddling is organized by United Front, China's international foreign influence program inaugurated in 2015 by Chinese General Secretary Xi Jinping. CISA says its investigation revealed that Han Dong was also communicating with United Front affiliates in New York. Based on insider CISA's findings, Global News reported that several 2019 election candidates of undisclosed federal political parties met with Canadian-based United Front representatives. Based on the target and the content of the intelligence warnings, the reasonable assumption is that these candidates were standing for Trudeau's Liberal Party. Whether these efforts affected the 2019 election results, CISA could not say. It is not charged with counting the votes in Canada's elections. Prime Minister Trudeau and his government insist that China's alleged influence campaign did not affect the election results. Canadians can have confidence that the integrity of our elections held, the Prime Minister said. His office tried to undercut the CISA's allegations by suggesting they contained any number of errors and called for an investigation into the whistleblower leaks. CSIS has taken the extraordinary step of publicly expressing its concerns of voter fraud and election result manipulation by China's government. So while it doesn't count the votes, it has sufficient corroborating, incontrovertible intelligence reports that raise serious concerns that some level of the voting was fraudulent and expressly directed towards candidates for Trudeau's government. Why didn't the government act? The Prime Minister and his office have so far refused to comment publicly on what it knew and when it knew it other than to say in the case of Han Dong that there was no actionable evidence. So far, the public has been left to take the government's word for it. Yet other questions remain. Global News reported, The Prime Minister's office did not directly answer a series of questions from Global News, including whether or not Prime Minister Trudeau was briefed in 2022 on Canadian intelligence that alleged China had covertly funded a clandestine network of candidates in the 2019 election. A foreign influence registry might have prevented the abuses. However, a 2021 Conservative Party private member's bill that would have established a foreign influence registry failed in the Trudeau government-controlled House of Commons. China's clandestine behavior, coupled with Trudeau's inaction on securing the federal elections, even after repeated efforts to warn him and his government opened the door to suspicion about the integrity of the election results and even the authenticity of Trudeau's government. It also puts a big question mark over the government's resolve to put national interest above partisan politics. Trudeau has rebuffed any suggestion of publicly investigating duplicity by his government or complicity with China to undermine Canada's democracy. He even suggested that those calling for public inquiry are motivated by racism. That the Trudeau government is compromised is almost beyond question. Though all the facts need to be gathered and CSIS briefs need verifying through a nonpartisan public inquiry. The question now becomes just who in the government is compromised and how far up it goes. However, the opposition parties need the new Democratic Party to break ranks with the Trudeau government to move forward with any meaningful parliamentary efforts to hold the government to account. Trudeau has so far managed to avoid this. 
In March of 2022, the Liberals and the NDP brokered a side agreement that formally sees the Trudeau government pushing NDP policies as part of its own legislative platform in exchange for the NDP's continued backing in the House of Commons until 2025. One opposition party leader called it a false majority. The coalition has allowed Trudeau to operate with the legislative confidence of a majority government and, as necessary, avoid parliamentary committee accountability and confidence votes. And the NDP continues to give the appearance it is disinclined to see this power-sharing arrangement disturbed. Though this, too, could be in the process of changing. The fact that the government has so far been able to avoid any serious scrutiny has given Trudeau the opportunity to sow doubt about the truthfulness of the whistleblower intelligence allegations. To pacify concerns and in lieu of a public inquiry, Trudeau has asked a family friend and former Governor General David Johnston to impanel what is being characterized as a toothless and government-friendly investigation to investigate his government. Opposition parties were quick to point out that Johnson is also a registered member of the Trudeau Foundation and questioned Johnson's ability to be impartial. The National Post reported the Trudeau Foundation received a remarkable influx of donations that began with Trudeau's political rise and continued after he became Prime Minister. While these trends have given rise to suspicions of pay-for-play, one donation in particular, the CSIS briefs allege, has direct links to China. The National Post reported, in 2016, after meeting with Trudeau in an exclusive fundraiser at a private Vancouver home, Chinese businessman Zhang Bin donated $200,000 to the Trudeau Foundation. That sum was packaged in a broader $1 million donation, and of that total, $50,000 was earmarked for erecting a statue of Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau. The Trudeau Foundation recently returned the donation to Zhang Bin. The results of Trudeau's proposed report will be used to consider any further steps toward a broader public investigation, making remote any serious investigation and possible accountability of the government. Yet it's still possible the opposition parties could force Trudeau's government to convene a public inquiry. As the intelligence leaks pile up, Trudeau's government still looks to be on the verge of collapse. With these pressures mounting, Trudeau's liberals propose to resurrect foreign influence legislation. Cynics say this is the government's most transparent effort in years to divert public attention from the guile, complicity, and breezy government approach to China's foreign security threats. Just as the pressures peaked, a visit by Joe Biden announced in the midst of the scandal on March 9th was completed March 23rd to 25th. The visit has temporarily pushed the allegations off of the front page of the newspapers. However, one reporter working with the whistleblower has said more information will be released. China's efforts to penetrate Canada are neither new nor hidden. The intelligence community's decade-long warnings about China's growing influence coincide with the rise of Justin Trudeau. That these warnings have only now grown into a crisis exposes a shameful collapse of Canada's media. The trumpet has warned about these trends for years. The ruling Liberal government has been trading Canadian national interest for Chinese money for decades. In 2012, when Trudeau was standing for Liberal Party leadership, he penned an op-ed published in the National Post that was both a love letter to China and a dog whistle to powerful Liberal insiders and other connected interests. It was a declaration of his intention not to disturb the Chinese economic invasion of Canada, bisecting lucrative Liberal business interests, and that he was all in. The Liberal Party of Canada has long been a Trojan horse for the Chinese invasion of Canada. The Liberal Party of Canada is becoming the only party that the People's Republic of China can support, CSIS has warned. 
Since Trudeau has been in power, that invasion has accelerated, morphing into policy compliance and national humiliation on the world stage. This kind of leadership is a heavy curse on the nation. How can Canada remain free and prosperous under these conditions? These circumstances reveal the dangerous reality of Canada's ruling government. They are putting partisan interests and personal gain ahead of national security. And not only is Justin Trudeau and his government and financial backers deluding themselves about the nature of China's ambitions, their deceit and complicity are deluding the nation. They are putting the nation to sleep and undermining Canada's democracy. The Bible reveals that Canada's internal divisions will have serious consequences. Reality can only be ignored for so long before it comes crashing in. End time Bible prophecy shows that China's designs on Canada are far from benevolent and will lead to violence. Canada will have to suffer to learn the dangers of compromising with evil. We should have learned these hard lessons from the last world war, but Canadians have long forgotten that distant national suffering. In this way, it's the 1930s all over again. Just as England's pre-war leadership compromised with Hitler in Germany, Canada's leadership continues to compromise with a newly emboldened Chinese dragon. Canada's leadership is weakening the nation. This inflames China's warlike ambitions, putting the security of the Canadian nation in imminent peril. It also endangers world peace. To learn more about these alarming trends, what you can do about them on a personal level, and to have the enduring hope you need to courageously face them, request a free copy of Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry's booklet, Winston S. Churchill, The Watchman. Our last word today is about an attitude, a specific kind of attitude that the Bible shows that followers of Jesus Christ must develop and be perpetually guided by. It's a mindset that Christians are supposed to be directed by all year long, but it is especially relevant at this time of year, and that is the foot washer's attitude. Bible readers will be familiar with the account of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples at the time of Passover which is the time of year that we are heading into in just a few days. Chapter 13 in the Gospel of John includes numerous details about the first instance of this. It was during dinner on the night of Passover in the year 31 AD. And at a certain point, Christ stood up and took a towel and basin and proceeded to wash the feet of each of the 12 disciples. The Herbert W. Armstrong College Bible Correspondence Course gives us some context for this. One part of Lesson 29 states, Since open-toed sandals were the customary footwear of the day, feet could become quite dirty. Foot washing upon entering a house was considered a menial task, usually done by the lowest servants. End quote. So Jesus Christ was demonstrating great humility 
and an attitude of real service with this foot washing. At the heart of the whole practice is a very profound humility and service-oriented attitude. The correspondence course continues from there saying, By washing their feet, Jesus was illustrating to his disciples that he had come to earth to serve mankind. Shortly afterward, he proved the extent of his willing and loving service when he gave his very life for the sins of all mankind. End quote. So foot washing clearly represents an attitude of putting others above yourself and serving and sacrificing in humility. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Fleury writes about this in his book called John's Gospel, The Love of God, and he calls the foot washing ceremony a, quote, beautiful ordinance of humility. So the foot washing ceremony is clearly not some inexplicable Jewish ritual or just a purely physical convention of some kind. It is a demonstration of a way of life, the way that Christ lives and the way his followers must live. Trumpet.com managing editor Brad McDonald wrote an article all about this. It's called The Foot Washer's Attitude. The information from this segment comes mostly from that article. And in one section, Mr. McDonald writes, Figuratively, Jesus Christ spent his entire life washing feet. Every minute of every hour of every day of every year of his life in the flesh was spent humbly serving God and serving mankind. The foot-washing attitude of humility and service was in his mind constantly, and God wants it to be in ours. And then a little further down, Mr. McDonald is showing that after Christ washed his disciples' feet, he then commanded them to do the same to each other every year on the night of Passover, and he writes, Christ is telling us, I have lived a life of humility and service toward God and all men. Now follow my example. End quote. So there is just a great deal of meaning packed into the foot washing ceremony. It's saturated with rich and deep symbolism, and it's all about living the way of give, living the way of humility and service, not just on Passover, but 365 days a year. And if you'd like to understand more about that foot washer's frame of mind, please check out that article by Mr. Brad McDonald. It's called The Foot Washer's Attitude, and you can find a link to that in the show notes for today's episode of Trumpet Hour. You'll also find a link there to Mr. Fleury's book, John's Gospel, The Love of God. That book goes into great depth about this, and you can order your free hard copy of that there. And then you'll also find links in the show notes to the three articles that today's reports were based on. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we're coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please send any comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. I'd like to thank my guests, Peter Van Halteren and Mr. Timothy Ostendarp, for their contributions to the episode. Many thanks also to Nicholas Irwin and Jesse Hester for taking care of the audio work for this episode. And I'll leave you with this thought from Charles Caleb Colton. The greatest friend of truth is time. Her greatest enemy is prejudice, and her constant companion is humility. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.